This is the Liberty and Law Podcast, where practicing lawyer and legal scholar Jeff Teichert offers unique insight into the relationship between law and liberty in history, politics, and American life. If you have a passion for liberty, you are in the right place. All right, Liberty lovers, we're back for another edition of the Liberty and Law Podcast. This is Jeff Teichert, your host, a practicing attorney and legal scholar. And today I have a special guest, Christopher Eastwood. I, I think you go by Chris, is that right? Uh, Christopher. Christopher, yeah, thank oh, you. okay. And uh, he is, the, uh, is a prosecutor with the city of Longview, Washington, but also the author of a book entitled The Liberty Driven Revolution, How to Restore America and Break the Chains of Tyranny. And this is a book that is particularly uh, germane to the subject matter of our podcast. And so welcome on, Chris. Christopher. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Um, so you talk uh, about the heritage of liberty and, and, uh, and just to kind of give an overview, you talk about a heritage of liberty, about the foundations of our liberty, about our founding revolution principles of liberty that you sort of uh, draw from all of that and uh, and then talking about the the convention of 1787 where the constitution was formed uh, the constitution and bill of rights and how how you believe liberty has been lost and then how you believe it might be found so uh, you define liberty in the book as uh, the absolute right, sorry, the absolute freedom for each person to do as they please with their own selves and with the product of their own labors, constrained, defined, and explained by certain philosophical foundations. And what is the meaning of the word absolute in that sentence for you? Um, yeah, uh complete without uh without constraint other than the specific constraints that we that we talk about um it's something that is uh that is inherent and innate and uh not subject to uh someone else's uh whim or uh the edict of a of a executive yeah, governmental you, you, executive you quote abraham lincoln for the proposition that that uh, freedom is not merely a change of masters and that and we see we see revolutions like that in latin america it seems like every generation in some countries there's a a new glorious revolution and then a new military dictatorship right. and and basically it's business as usual with a change of masters. Um, what what uh, do you think made the United States originally different from say all those Latin American juntas or whatever, where you know it seems like there's a glorious revolution, the people are upset, they want a new master that'll be more benevolent and they end up with you know, another mil military dictatorship. Yeah, well, you know the same the same story played out in 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 revolutionary France. 
um, where it was a desire to change masters. Um, there's, there's a commonality in, in all revolutions and that is dissatisfaction with the status quo. That's common to every revolution that has ever taken place. Uh, the difference with the American Revolution is that was accompanied by the presence of people who had a philosophical understanding of what it would re require to uh, not just change masters, but fundamentally change the, the nature of government. That's one of the things I talk about in the book is that, um, you know, <clears throat> America had an opportunity to, after the revolution, to have a king. We could have had a king and that could have, we could have gone back to the, the things that we were familiar with, the things that we were comfortable with, um, but we didn't. And we, we didn't specifically because the American Revolution was founded on this belief in liberty. It was not merely a dissatisfaction with the status quo. It was a, it was a liberty-driven revolution. It was, a, it was a revolution that rejected the, uh, the Hobbesian view that we needed to have a master, we needed to have a king or a, or a, a emperor or a dictator or anybody, a, a strong man at the top, uh, directing and guiding and leading our lives. It was an embracing of, uh, of Locke's view of, of uh, society that uh, as if we can preserve as much as possible uh, the state of nature where we are free to govern our own lives, uh, we can actually have a, a, a functional and, and free society without a, a king at the top. It, it was uh, an embracing of this idea that uh, all people are created equal. And uh, that, that, that's a phrase that we, we say a lot. We repeat that phrase a lot. Oh, all men are created equal. All men are created, we, we, we repeat it. But I'm not sure that we often stop and think about the significance of what that means. It means that when all people are created equal, that you can't have a rule that applies to some and doesn't apply to everyone because then people aren't equal. If I have a law that says this group of people can do this and this group of people can do that, that's not equal. And what we have in, in America today, and this is part of, the, part of the liberty lost section, what we have in America today is a very bifurcated uh, nation. And we have all sorts of groups who receive uh, all sorts of special uh, considerations from government. So we, we don't unfortunately live in a land where all people are, are really treated equally. And, you know, I know, uh, I know Madison that was, thought it was a fundamental to the, our, our revolution. I, I know James Madison Sorry? thought about that in Federalist when he wrote Federalist 10 and he talked about how by extending the, the sphere of society, you would, it would be less likely that any particular faction could dominate uh, and work its will in the political system. I, I don't know if he foresaw how big certain factions would get within a larger nation state. Um, uh, because we, we do see that, um, you know, just what you're, what you're talking about, I think. Well, and I, and I think, you know, part of the problem is that we've had some fundamental changes in how uh, our government and, and how the people view the government and how the government views people. Um, uh, I, I, I talk a little, and again, in the Liberty Lost section, 
I talk about uh, the 14th Amendment. Now, I'm, I'm generally in favor of, of the purpose of the 14th Amendment and, um, and, and all of the Reconstruction Amendments. I think they were, they were generally a positive, a positive thing. Uh, but we cannot overlook the fact that the 14th Amendment fundamentally shifted how uh, the relationship between the people and the federal government. And because of that fundamental shift, we began to see combinations of factions and people gathering together to gain more and more of that vast federal power that now existed. Uh, and so the motivation was there to have more and more corruption. If we didn't have that kind of system, if we were left to having you know, 50 independent states, it'd be a lot harder for one group to have as much control as the two political parties do right now. You know, I, I remember Gary Hart um, said in a, a, a speech uh, that the amount of money that he paid or that his campaign uh, spent uh, to get all the way to the Democratic Convention in 1984 is comparable roughly to what a U.S. Senate race is now in, in inflation-adjusted dollars. Uh, and, and that was going all the way to the Democratic Convention for the presidency. Uh, and so the cost of running for office has, has astronomically increased. And we've seen various attempts at reform. Um, we hear people you know, bashing Citizens United. And I, you know, of course, heard John McCain talk about if we, we've got to get the money out of politics. And I think the only way you're going to get the money out of politics is to get the politics out of money. Um, if, if politics is determining who succeeds and who fails, politicians are always going to be bought and paid for. Uh, what's your thought on that? Yeah. You know, I, I, I agree, and, and, it's, and it's more than just getting the politics out of money. I mean, um, that, that, is, that is a huge aspect of it, and, and I think, uh, you know, it, you can boil it down to that point. The fundamental problem, in my, my view, is that, is that the, the federal government um, has had a fundamental shift in how it views its own role and its own purpose. Um, it is... Uh, it is not as constrained as it once was. You know, the whether that whether it's whether it's money or it's power, I think both of those things are are dangerous. And what we have with the federal government today is we have a federal government that is uh, extraordinarily powerful. And when an organization wields that much power, uh, whether it's whether it's money or not, when it, when you, when you have that much power, uh, there are going to be those who are clamoring to get a piece of that power. Um, and so, right. you know, yeah, you do have corporations who are clamoring to get a piece of that power. They're to you know, buy off senators and, and congressmen. Uh, but you also have uh, other power brokers out there who are, who are clamoring for a piece of that power. And I think that's what we see a little bit in, um, in a lot of the, uh, like the social justice movements that are geared towards um, giving one group more political and social power in, in our nation. Uh, and I think government is, is playing into that. Um, so it's not just money. I think it's all, all types of power. Um, earlier, you mentioned Hobbes and, of course, his, uh, his theory that you needed 
a, a strong enough ruler to be able to keep the peace. And, and I, I personally think he probably came to that conclusion on the heels of a century of the Wars of the Roses. Um, I, I think he was also practical about it, though. I don't think he thought that there had to be a king or something like that. But uh, I think it's interesting that he entitled his seminal work Leviathan, which I believe is a sea monster. Uh, mm -hmm. Maybe it's a multi-headed hydra. I'm not sure. But do you, do you think Hobbes, in a, in a funny way, was trying to allude to the idea that government was a necessary evil? Um. Yeah, Hobbes is an interesting is an interesting case study. Um, you know, he uh, he saw the he saw the English Revolution uh, from the other side of the coin from from what Locke 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 lived Locke and Hobbes both lived through the English Revolution, um, uh, whereas whereas Locke remained in England and saw it firsthand. Uh, Hobbes um, was uh, tutor to the the soon-to-be king, and uh, was living in France during that time. He saw it from the monarch's perspective uh, instead of the people's perspective, and so his view was that it was absolute pandemonium, and that uh, that kind of that kind of chaos is inevitable if you don't have that strong man at the top. Uh, he advocated for absolute monarchy. Uh, meaning that whatever the monarch said go, he, uh, goes, um, regardless of, of uh, you know, how it might violate people's uh, rights or, or harm people, it was better to have a bad king than it was to uh, return to the state of nature where it was a war of all against all and dog eat dog, um, you know, chaos. Uh, so he was very much in favor of, of, of a king. Um, I, I think he does um, leave a little bit of room for, for saying that it's a necessary evil, um, but he's so, he's so absolute, he's so adamant in his defense of monarchy that it's really hard to, to see him <laughs> making any allowance for anything else, uh, which is interesting coming because he, he, he kind of, he, he's kind of the one that, um, I don't want to say he he uh, he came up with the idea, but he certainly did um, uh, develop the idea of of natural rights um, to a great extent, uh, but not necessarily in a positive light. He had a, he had kind of a, a a dismal view of of humanity uh, and believed that certain people had to be specially endowed by uh, the divine in order to be able to rule over everybody else. So yeah, Hob Hobbes is an interesting. Interesting character. Speaking of the English Revolution, I don't know if you've heard it, but I did it. My last podcast uh, was about the trial of King Charles, which I think is fascinating reading in 1649. Uh, and the king has a fairly sophisticated discussion with the president of the court about <laughs> the various theories of sovereignty that prevailed at that time. And basically told the king, you know, your your view of the of sovereignty is simply wrong. Um, anyway, uh, the English Revolution is is fascinating to me. I've studied it a lot. 
because they come off the revolution. They try to put the king back on his throne, but get him to accept a, a more limited role. And of course, Charles is constitutionally, and I mean in his own personal constitution, incapable of compromise. <laughs> and uh, and ends up getting put on trial for treason because he's, you know, they find out he's plotting behind the backs of everybody that he's negotiating with um, to try to get back on the throne through a military action. And they decide he's too dangerous to live, put him on trial for treason and cut his head off. And for 12 years, most people don't know this, but for 12 years, England has no king. And uh, they have Oliver Cromwell as the Lord Protector, who is, they say, king in all but name. But he also governs under a, con a written constitution called the Instrument of Government. Uh, it's an experiment. Uh, Cromwell has his successes and his failures. Um, he dissolved Parliament at one point, which was exactly why they cut Charles' head off uh, for doing the exact same thing. And... Um, and at the end of this, Cromwell dies and Richard Cromwell is put in his place by parliament, but he is not the Leviathan that Hobbes would have wanted, or at least is unable to keep the peace. And the Puritan parliament panics, tears up the instrument of government, summons young Charles Stuart back from exile in France and sets him on the throne uh, in his father's place, backdates his reign to the death of his father. And, you know, Parliament, as you probably know, uh, made him promise that what was done to his father had to be forgiven. And of course, he ultimately broke that promise pretty quickly and even dug Oliver Cromwell up and killed him again. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and I think people could have looked at the American Revolution at the time, and some probably did, and said, well, George Washington is our Oliver Cromwell. And as soon as he's gone, um, the same thing is going to happen that happened in England, and we'll be clamoring for the British to come back in and govern us, or we'll be wanting to put a king on the throne uh, because, because we can't do it. We can't govern ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. So what do you think made our revolution ultimately more successful and, and uh, our written constitution endure, at least in the form it's in, and the English revolution not so, you know, not so successful and not so long, long lasting? Well, you know, it's interesting that um, we talk about the, the, the revolution and um, we talk about, you know, 1776 and that being the start of the revolution. There's an interesting quote that I, uh, that I have in, in my book from, um, from John Adams. And he says that uh, the revolution didn't begin with the war. He says the, uh, rev the revolution was uh, in the minds and hearts of the American people, a change in their religious sentiments of their duties and obligations. And that the, uh, the revolution had taken place before the war even started. And I think that's, that's a big part of it, that there was, a, there was a change in the desires of the American people 
that they no longer desired to have someone uh, ruling over them. You know, America was in a unique position uh, in, in all of history. You know, the, the English Revolution, they have, you know, uh, well, I, I was going to say thou thousand years, but, you know, at least hundreds of years of, of, uh, of history and uh, tradition to, to break out of in order to be able to function. And, and, and I think the English Revolution is another example of just wanting to have a change of masters, being dissatisfied with the status quo and not having a clear vision of, of what it was they were going towards. It was, it was running away from what they had, not going towards something that they wanted. And the American Revolution, I think, was the opposite. Yes, we were running away from the king. We were, we were rebelling against the king, but it was running towards something that we wanted. Uh, and that was, that was this liberty. And liberty is something that had been preached uh, in America for uh, probably 50 plus years prior to the 1776. We have records of uh, some of the, uh, the Protestant preachers in the colonies uh, discussing in from the pulpit the uh, their God-given rights and the people on a very broad basis all understood the uh, that inherent God-given right and they felt that if they had this gift from God if this was a divine uh, uh, blessing then they had a duty and an obligation to, uh, to defend that. And, and so rather than being throwing off uh, a, a king to, to, in hopes of getting a better master, it was, we no longer want a king at all. We wanna be able to rule our own lives. And, they were and, and here's the key, they were willing to allow other people to rule their own lives. And that is the, the, the heart of liberty is, is a desire because you never want the tyrant to come and control you you always want the tyrant to come and control your neighbor. Right. And that I think is, it was fundamentally different in the American revolution is that the American people didn't want that. They weren't looking for the king or a, or a government or a president or a governor to come and rule over their neighbor. They were really want, truly wanting to be, to be free and, and grant that to everybody else because it was a change in their religious sentiments. It was a shift in how they viewed their relationship with, uh, with each other and with God and, and how liberty played a role in that. You know, uh, uh, among the philosophers that the founders looked at, of course, uh, we have Locke that, that you mentioned, and, and I'm much more of a Lockean than anything else. Uh, but they also, uh, I know Madison was a fan of Montesquieu, um, who was a Frenchman, but Montesquieu in yeah. his, in his famous book, The Spirit of Laws, uh, said that that England was the one country in the world that had liberty as the aim of its government. And of course, he didn't have America to look to at that point. But is it fair to say that we took a lot of principles from English common law and precedents that even came out of the English Revolution, for example, like King Charles mm -hmm. was doing a lot of creative mechanisms to tax the people without the consent of parliament. So taxation without representation is tyranny, is the rallying cry of our American revolution. So it seems to me that England evolved over a thousand years 
to something where the people believed they had certain rights, even against the king. Yeah. Uh, and we, you know, and those were elevated in the public mind, perhaps by the English Revolution or the Glorious Revolution of 1688 or, you know, any of their other watershed political moments, even going back to Magna Carta, um, where mm -hmm. they sort of found it line upon line, precept upon precept. And, and here in America, we kind of took all the best of that and said, here's what we want to do. Here's the kind of government we want. Is that fair to say? Yeah, you know, um, I, I I I talk about Magna Carta in in, in the book, but I I even go back to, all the way back to uh, uh, Aquinas. Uh, See, I think and, the Magna Carta the is misunderstood personally, but I'd like to hear your view on it. Yeah, um, the uh, uh, I I even go back, but I even go back all the way to to um, Thomas Aquinas, um, right. Summa Theologica. Um, that where he he really lays out uh, this this idea of liberty uh, in a way that does you know that does connect it to the divine that, that connects it to to God and um, and yeah I think I think you're right that there's that there was a lot of um, there were a lot of uh, evolutionary steps along the path towards uh towards liberty it's it's a liberty has taken a a long and circuitous journey through its life uh if we were to if we were to uh, start its uh its birth with uh aquinas and 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 track its um, progress through the ages uh it had a lot of fits and starts before people started to, to really understand what that concept really meant and I think there was a lot of experimentation with that concept in, in England. And I think that's why Montesquieu says that liberty is the aim of the, the English government, because it was really the only country where you had people who, I mean, you, you have, a, you have a, a, a rebellion of the people in England every 50 years or so. Uh, it's, um, they're a cantankerous lot, we, can, we might say. Um, <laughs> Winston Churchill, they, uh, he believed that the Peasants' Revolt began in Northumbria because there were so many um, of the Viking race that ended up there that really <laughs> never practiced feudalism during the Middle Ages the way that the rest of England did. Uh -huh. Yeah, I, I, there, there is the strong... I, and I don't, I don't know. I don't know what it is. I mean, we we might uh, might be interested to have a you know have, see a historian uh, track back through the ages and see where those uh, where those traditions came from with um, people being willing to to rise up against their uh, against their king. It doesn't happen a whole lot in the rest of Europe. You don't see that a whole lot. People just kind of put their heads down and and accept what is. Um, Oh, and you even have uh, I, I love I love Machiavelli and, and reading uh, the the Prince. It's um, gives a great insight into uh, into how monarchies work and especially how monarchies worked in the rest of Europe. Um, but it's interesting in, in England that you have still you still have this monarchy, and you have people who are advocating like Hobbes for absolute monarchy, and this uh, this infatuation that they had with uh, royalty and at the same time alongside it growing up alongside it you had this principle these principles of liberty that were 
that were being explored and, and uh, experimented with. Um, and yeah, I think, I think uh, America would not exist if it were not for uh, our English heritage of rebellion and uh, the experimentations that were done in the centuries beforehand uh, in England with liberty. Um, and so we owe a lot to, uh, you know, the, I, like I have, I have a chapter called the heritage of liberty where, where we kind of dive into a little bit of that. Um, it, it's, it's not just something that the founding fathers came up with off the top of their head. This is something that, that there was a long uh, tradition of. Right. In the book, you also say, and I'm shifting gears a little bit here. Um, yeah. You say, first, we learn that the purpose and design of the Constitution was to protect and defend liberty. Thus, the Constitution is the servant of liberty, not its master. And I'm wondering what the implications for jurisprudence are where, where, where this, um, this principle leads. Is it natural law supersedes the text or supplements it or just informs the under, our understanding of the text? How do, you, how do you understand that in terms of a philosophy of jurisprudence that a Supreme Court justice might, might use when constitutional questions arise? Um. Well, I certainly think the latter is, is true. It, it, needs to, it needs to inform uh, every justice's um, reading of the Constitution. Um, you, you cannot understand a single word of the Constitution unless you have a firm understanding of what they meant by liberty and that the, and that the promotion of liberty was the ultimate goal of everything they wrote. Um, that that is that, that I think is uh, a, a foundational uh, understanding that you have to have. You know, I, I began writing this. I began the process of being able to write this in in 2010, and this was during during uh, the Obama years, and I I was teaching a class on the Constitution. And I remember discussing, and this was just a, like a community class to a bunch of, you know, just people. Um, wasn't like at a college or anything like that. It was just a, a group of people. Um, and I remember at the time, a lot of people were saying, well, we just got to follow the constitution. We just got to follow the constitution. If you follow the constitution, all these things that Obama is doing will all be, you know, reversed and all be fixed. Uh, we just got to follow the constitution. And then I, and then I, I really look at Obama was a constitutional law professor. <laughs> so if we just look at the text of the constitution, if that's what people advocate, then, then we're never going to get, we're never going to have any kind of, uh, of restoration of, of liberty. We're not going to be able to, to do anything significant because um, looking at the text alone, it, it, is, it is open to uh, many interpretations. Um, so if we're going to restore liberty, we have to go, we have to go beyond the text and we have to look at the, uh, the intent, but also the context in which the constitution was, was written. And so, yes, I, I do think that, uh, a Supreme court justice has to have, uh, 
a, a firm understanding of what the Constitution was supposed to be accomplishing. I also think that that understanding of what the Constitution was meant to be accomplishing should lead to, and I, I hate to make a blanket rule that applies in all situations, because I'm sure the, the moment you do that, there's going to be an exception that, that where, where that's not the case. But I, I think in general, um, the, the default should be to defer to liberty uh, over, over even what the Constitution itself says. If there's, if there's a provision in the Constitution that is contrary to liberty, then I think it is, it is perfectly justifiable to negate that, um, that provision. And quite frankly, the provisions for slavery are a prime example. And we did eventually uh, do away with those, but that's a prime example of uh, something that was in the constitution, in the text of the constitution, but was contrary to liberty. And so regardless of any argument that anybody else could have made, uh, the, that is a, a prime reason why it, it can and should and did uh, get get stricken. Uh, we, we might be able to find uh, other areas of the constitution where, where that uh, would also apply. However, I think that we are kind of living right now in a post-constitutional America because our legislatures, our, our executive, they, they, don't, they don't pay much attention to the constitution. It is an obstacle to be, to be uh, you know, worked around, not a guide on how, they should, on how they should function. It's not a restraint anymore. Uh, it's simply uh, something that they got to, you know, figure a way around. We do that with, you know, executive orders. We do that with simply, you know, well, we do it a lot with the uh, uh, um, necessary and proper clause, you know, uh, commerce clause. Uh, we, we have a lot of ways of, of avoiding the limitations that the Constitution explicitly puts on government. Uh, because, and, and we the people allow it to happen because we the people don't understand what liberty is. So we're, le we're allowing government to usurp power that it doesn't have. Let me get to that in just a second, because I, I do actually have a quote from the book I want to ask you about along these lines. Um, but before we get there, in terms of jurisprudence, now, <clears throat> uh, my understanding of the substantive due process argument is there's this provision in the 14th Amendment that says that a person cannot be deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, and some, some government uh, uh, exercise of power is just so onerous to your liberty that it qualifies as a punishment without due process, and that that would include um, preventing you from having an abortion, and it becomes the philosophical basis for Roe versus Wade, although I, I still think Roe is perhaps a result in search of a rationale, but, but nonetheless, people seem to, to suggest that it's, it's not written in the Constitution, but it's some emanating from the penumbras somewhere, and it's our basic belief in liberty that, that creates that. What would you do with Roe, given the analysis you just gave us before? Um. I, I, I think the substitute due process is a good idea. I think it's misapplied in Roe. Um, I think uh, that um, Roe was entirely decided 
without consideration for the rights of the unborn. Uh, it was entirely based on on the the, the limited rights of of um, a limited view of the rights of the uh, of the woman in question. Does the substantive um, due process? So yeah, I, I think. Does the substantive due process idea create too much freewheeling jurisprudence where it's a continuing constitutional convention by nine justices? Um, that's a good question. That's a good question. Um, I'll, ha I'll have to sit and think on that for a little while. I, I might have an answer for you later. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> I'll have to think about that. Now, now for the for the other issues you were talking about, the exercise of government power, executive orders, and, and so on. You wrote, citizens in a nation governed by Locke's theories are also required to be more involved in civic matters, lest the government be transformed by this tendency toward authoritarianism. Now, I I wanted to, to pose the question this way in terms of more involved in civic matters. I know de Tocqueville wrote in Democracy in America that, you know, the, the most uneducated American in a cabin on the frontier knew more about how his government operated than the most sophisticated neighborhoods in Paris knew about theirs. And Tocqueville was, you know, prone sometimes to rhetorical flourishes, but, but I do think <laughs> There was an I, you know, there was a, a sense back then of participatory government, and if we look at policing, for example, I mean, the English bobbies are called bobbies. They're because the first professional police force in England was was in London, and it and uh, it was in the Victorian period. Um, when London already had 3 million people and was the largest city in the world. And prior to that, it was citizen militias that policed the streets. Um, in the United States, New York City was the first in 1845. Uh, so we had gone for a long time without professional police and, and mostly without professional military um, in the United States. And then skipping ahead, we had a president that I think made a watershed kind of change. And I'm talking about Thomas Woodrow Wilson, um, who really I think is the father of the modern administrative state um, where I think he believed he was, he himself was sort of an elite. He was a university president but I think he believed in government by elites, which goes more back to the monarchist model in some ways. Um, he, he wouldn't have necessarily picked them by heredity, but, but he wanted a government by experts, I think. And I think that's where yeah, a lot of this begins. Because I mean, we're not just talking about executive orders. I mean, I could almost live with that. The president's elected, we could use his executive orders again to campaign against right. him and things like that. But what about the code of federal regula re regulations? I mean, it takes up like three big, huge uh, walls in a law library, whereas the laws passed by Congress take up two little shelves. Um, so the, the people's elected representatives aren't making most of the law in America anymore. So I, yeah. I put the question, number one, 
is this what you mean by the creeping or by the tendency toward authoritarianism? And what do you suggest in terms of getting uh, citizens more involved in civic matters? Yeah, um, the, the CFR is definitely uh, one example of, of creeping authoritarianism, but, but the CFR came into existence um, uh, as a result of the creeping authoritarianism that had, that had uh, gone before that. So I, I think it's, um, we, we can come up with a lot of examples, but to say, to, to pinpoint and, and look at one of them and say, this is, this is the big problem, I think is, is uh, problematic um, because the, it, it is, we have to realize that it is, it is human nature that pushes us towards authoritarianism because when things are good, you wanna relax and you don't wanna worry about all the details. And so you let somebody else worry about the details. And when somebody else is worrying about the details, that's where all the power comes from. And you start to have, you know, that kind of creeping uh, authoritarianism that comes from people's laziness of having somebody else deal with all the, the issues of the day. You know, you can look at, um, you can look at, uh, at ancient Israel how they, they wanted to have a king um, because they wanted to be like all the other nations. And, and I think part of that is, is because they didn't want to have the personal responsibility that, having, that being uh, active participating citizens required. And they wanted to have a king to, to manage all those, all those things. Um, and, and we know how that turned out for them. Um, but um, I, I think the answer and, and that's, this is the reason that I wrote the book in the first place. I think the answer, because I, I, I struggled with this. Like I said, I, I began writing this in 2010, uh, didn't get it published until last year. So it took me quite a while to, to get to this point. Um, I, I've had a lot of time to, to, to think about what is, what is the, uh, the linchpin? What is the, what is the thing that if we, can solve this one issue that everything else falls like dominoes. Um, and time and time and time again, I come back to the idea that it has to be driven by the citizens. If the citizens do not awake to a sense of their awful situation, if they do not awake to a sense of what they have lost, and what their duties and obligations are. If we don't have exactly what John Adams said, you know, a revolution uh, that is uh, uh, a change in our religious sentiments uh, of our duties and obligations. If we don't have that kind of revolution, um, then the, I don't. I don't think there's anything that can bring us back from the edge. I don't think there's anything that can bring us back from the the creep of totalitarianism. You know, the it, I think I don't know why this springs to mind exactly, but. In, in, the, in the English Revolution, again, going back, uh, of course, King Charles was, he had a wife that was very devout Catholic, and he aligned himself with the most Catholic uh, sect within the Church of England, the Arminians, and his, his Archbishop of Canterbury, William Laud, was, was very unpopular. Um, and, of course, the Puritans looked at that like, uh, you know, 
the common book of prayer and all these other things are being used to wipe out Puritanism. And Puritanism was very popular in England at that time. And, and so, so the, the, the king wanted um, religious uh, uh, toleration. I'm sorry, he wanted religious uniformity. The Puritans wanted toleration. But then after the revolution and, and Charles II comes back after Cromwell dies and he's pushing for toleration and the Puritans now want uniformity. Uh, although they want it on different principles. They want Puritan uniformity, not, not uh, Anglican uniformity. And so, so, here's, so, so this is an example, I think, of where I want tyranny, I want government power used against my neighbor, not against me. I want it used against the Puritans, or I want it used against the Catholics. Uh, because I, I think ultimately the, the, the way to understand the, the, the way that religious freedom was debated in Stuart England is toleration was a weapon. It wasn't something people really believed in. I mean, I, I think there were people that believed in it genuinely and you know, Locke wrote a very famous letter on it, but, but I think it was, if you want uniformity, you're wanting it to benefit the Catholic Church. And then if you're wanting toleration, you're wanting toleration of Catholicism. And, and uh, you know, maybe that was a matter of how demographics has changed over time. But I, I just find that interesting. We do seem to want to use the government to work our will against other people. And- uh, Oh, absolutely. Well, you know, and 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 we don't have to we don't have to go go to to uh, uh, the English Revolution to see that we see that in every time that there's a change in in uh, uh, party affiliation in the White House that what is what is completely unacceptable for a Republican do, to do becomes completely acceptable for a Democrat to do, uh, and vice versa. You oh, know, when sure. uh, when uh, I mean. To use to use a uh, an example when 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 Bush was uh, bombing in the Middle East that was unacceptable, but when Obama did it, it was okay. When Obama was putting people in uh, in cages, you know, kids in cages, that was okay. But when Trump did it, it wasn't okay. And when Biden does it, it is okay. So yeah, it's it's one hundred percent the same the same story being told over and over and over again. And politics doesn't change. Human nature doesn't change. And that's why, you know, there's a lot of people who say, well, we live in such a modern society and the things that they said 200 years ago, they just don't apply to us anymore because, you know, they couldn't have conceived of, of the kind of advancements we would have in, in this modern society. And to a degree, you're right, you know, technologically we've advanced, but human beings haven't changed. Human beings have not changed in millennia. And we all do the same things. And that's why the principles of liberty are going to be true all the time in every situation across the board. And if the people understand that, and if the people can live those principles, then we can have, then we can have true liberty. Well, and I think in a way, our technological advances, I think the internet is probably the most important technological <laughs> advance for politics since the printing press. Uh, you know, it changed everything in Europe when people could read the Bible for themselves and look at the Catholic Church and then say, right. wait a minute. Um, 
you know, yeah. and, and that changed politics in Europe too, fundamentally. I mean, it brought about the Reformation and a lot of other things. Um, so, I mean, I well, guess- what, the, what I think it did is not so much change, and, and, and this is, I don't think it so much changed it as, as it exposed it. Right. You know, the Catholic Church was able to hide in the shadows for a long time, and they were able to hide the truth and and play around with uh people's ignorance and i think the that the, the that the internet you're you're right the internet has done the same thing in that it has exposed uh the truth and uh people's ignorance is um is becoming uh less less acceptable because the internet is a vast repository of of useful information uh, I think that well, there are and opinion some too, forces because, acting in to, to the contrary of that also. But like you talked about citizen involvement and, and the internet is also a vast repository of opinion where virtually anyone at no cost, I mean, the cost of owning a personal computer can basically have their own TV station, their own radio station, which is, this is mine, um, you know, their own newspaper right. um, and, and publish it to as many people as will listen. And, and I think yeah. to some degree, that is, that is a place we have to go to breaking the power of elites. Uh, you agree? Yeah, absolutely. I think, I think uh, it's, it's, always, it's always beneficial when we can start taking things into our, our own hands and not, resort, not relying on the authorities, not relying on the... Uh, the, the wise, uh, you know, the gatekeepers, uh, whether that be in media or whether that be in government. Um, you know, I, I, I really think that, um, I, I think that we need a revolution in America uh, today. We need to have a revolution. Uh, and, when I, and when I call for a revolution, I'm not calling for people to whip out the, the AR-15s and storm their, you know, state capital or uh, the US capital. I'm talking about a revolution like the one that John Adams talked about. We need to have this awakening. We need to have people who are fundamentally changing how they view their relationship with government and their, their relationship with, with other people uh, and have in, in embracing liberty. I think we're going to have a revolution in America one way or the other. The question is, is it going to be a liberty-driven revolution or is it going to be a Marxist revolution? And I think we're getting to the point where we're, that, that decision is going to have to be made here, I think, within the next decade. Well, the, the way the millennials seem to be voting, I'm not, I'm not optimistic, but <laughs> um, here's another quote from your book. Earlier, we learned that the founding fathers acknowledged that they were not perfect and that the Constitution was not perfect. They left it to us to perfect both the Constitution and our conception of liberty consistent with the principles of natural law. Now, this seems to be a theme that, that you repeatedly address throughout uh, your book, that you kind of want to begin with a revolution of ideas a revolution of hearts and minds where people become wedded to personal liberty again and and well a, a social concept of liberty as well um now i think you know as well as i do the founders were not a monolith um 
they disagreed on a lot of things and there were various different opinions and the constitution and some of its imperfections are a result of those compromises. Um, so is what you're really looking for, I mean, I don't think any two people that debate natural law are probably gonna see it exactly the same, but are you calling for the nation as a whole, people, you know, every person to have some concept of natural law, debate it, discuss it, refine it, perfect it, whatever, whatever words you want to use. Is that, is that a fair way to talk about what you're thinking? Uh, yeah, I, I think, I think that is, that is, critical to have every everybody be aware of what uh, the philo the philosophical uh, foundations are of a free society if we don't understand what the philosophical foundations are and I mean every single person if you are you know an, an, an adult uh, American you need to have an understanding of the the philosophical foundations of Liberty. Uh, we can disagree. We can disagree on a lot of issues. And, and this is one of the things that I, that I kind of take issue with uh, in, in the book is that, uh, yes, there, were, there was uh, disagreement among the founding fathers, um, but they all, as a, as a group, as individuals, they all understood liberty. I think they all understood it uh, certainly on a much better level than Americans today understand it, um, that, their, that their disagreements were mostly disagreements of method, not of purpose. You know, you look at, the, at, the, uh, at Madison's notes at the Constitutional Convention, you look at the argument that they're having, they're, they're debating these issues uh, of, you know, well, how, how, does the, how does the executive branch look and how does the legislative branch look and what do we do uh, with, you know, this and that? And yeah, I mean, you know, what, what powers do the, does the government have? And, and uh, they're debating these issues, but never, not once, do they debate or argue over what liberty actually means because they all understood it. They all understood what they were trying to get to they just didn't always agree on how to get there. Now, I think that there was disagreement fundamentally on the question of whether or not black people were included in uh, the uh, conception of liberty. And so there was disagreement there. Um, but even those who believed in slavery, they believed in liberty for themselves. They just carved out an exception for black people. And what's interesting is we can see that throughout history is that almost every society that has ever existed has understood to some degree the principle of liberty, but they always have carved out exceptions. Um, you know, even 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 if we if we look to some of the most authoritarian governments, even when we look to you know Nazi Germany, they understood that it applied to themselves. They just didn't apply it to other people. Uh, the whole the whole premise of you know uh, of of a lot of our, our criminal law you know uh, uh, theft the concepts of theft and and uh, self defense and in murder cases and all that kind of stuff those are all 
you know, some somewhat an acknowledgement of the of some of the foundational principles of liberty, but there's always exceptions carved out. And so what I think we did in America is that when we, we laid this foundation where the exceptions would eventually be done away. But anyway, that's kind of a, a, a sidetrack. I think that uh, we do need to have um, an understanding. And even if it's flawed, even if it's a flawed understanding where we don't entirely get it 100% correct, I think it's better to have a common understanding of what liberty really means. And that's why I, I, I get very... I get very adamant and I, I, I capitalize the word liberty throughout the book. I don't know if you, you picked up on that, but the word liberty is capitalized specifically because I'm talking about a specific thing, not a, a, a nebulous concept that we don't have a, a, a specific uh, firm definition for. It's a, it's a very uh, a solid thing that I think everybody needs to have an understanding of. And once we have an understanding of what liberty is, then we can have debates of, well, how do we apply it? How do we live it? you know, et cetera, et cetera. It's interesting. While you were talking, I, I was thinking about Alexander Hamilton because he was probably the founder that was most associated with or most accused often of being a monarchist and wanting a king. And I don't think, I don't think Hamilton wanted a king. I think he, he maybe thought we had, we might need one at some point, but I, I don't think that he, that that was his, his idea. In fact, I, I'm, I'm going to have to paraphrase because I don't know the quote exactly, but Hamilton said something like those who would trade a little security or trade a, their liberty for a little security are, are ready for, a, or that nation that would do that is ready for a master and deserves one or so, something like that. Um, so I think he- I, I think that's actually Jefferson. Um, uh, there, there's a quote, something like that by Hamilton and I'd have to look it up, but anyway- a lot of them said, you know, what's interesting is a lot of the founding fathers echoed each other. There's a lot of uh, similar phrases coming out uh, of the founding fathers. Right. It, it is fair to say, though, I think that Hamilton was, and he's made his way into popular culture recently, which I, I think is probably a good thing. Uh, he's probably not the founding father I would have picked, but if, you know, um, but uh, there's, there's now other people studying Hamilton. Uh, but, but I think it's fair yeah. to say that Hamilton was a believer in big, big institutions, big, big uh, government, big um, military, central banking, and uh, big business. And, and I think he thought that's how we were going to become a wealthy, powerful country. Uh, you know, and the Jeffersonian ideal was much more agrarian. Um, and I think that's why after the Louisiana Purchase, you know, you could get 160 acres or something, enough for a family farm. Um, anyway, what do you do with that whole idea now when we, I mean, right, it doesn't have to be Mitt Romney, I quote, except that I remember him saying at one point uh, that his father, George Romney, who, who was a uh, automobile company CEO in Detroit, he said he mistrusted concentrations of power, both public and private. And so there's a question, I guess, of what do we, well, you, you said 
in the book, quote, we learn to accept the lies of politicians and their lack of virtue as the status quo. But I'm wondering how, how you look at um, concentrations of power that are private, um, how, how you would see Teddy Roosevelt and, you know, the Gilded Age and, you know, people that, that are making, that are, are grabbing market power, say, by predatory pricing or by combining fortunes rather than by earning it in the market, so to speak. Um, where do you come down on private concentrations of power and does the government have any role in checking it? Um, boy, there's, there's, there's so much there that you've said that I, that I want to comment on. Um, <laughs> um, I, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take it in order. Uh, even, even Alexander Hamilton, as authoritarian as he was, and let's make no mistake about it, he was rather authoritarian. He, he was, uh, from the time he was a child, he was very enamored of the aristocracy, and he wanted to establish an American aristocracy. Um, even though he was uh, he a was definitely orphan. the most authoritarian. <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah. Aristocracy um, would not have served and, him well. Uh, yeah. Well, he, he he kind of he kind of viewed himself as being uh, as being the rebirth, the, the, the new the new aristocracy. Uh, he kind of viewed himself as being a member of that, and and that's one of the reasons that he clamored so much to uh, to ingratiate himself with uh, Washington because he knew Washington was uh, well respected. And and anyway, that's that's kind of a, a side issue. But um, even even Hamilton. He did understand liberty, and in the moments where he let that slip, I think Washington was there to get him into check. Uh, there's an interesting moment in the uh, in the Constitutional Convention. Uh, everybody knew in the Constitutional Convention when they were talking about the executive branch. Everybody knew that Washington was going to be the first president. He was the most well-respected. Uh, uh, person, statesman, in the uh, in all of the colonies, everybody loved him. Yeah, I mean, they designed the uh, office and with he him had in a mind. Very, yeah, they they designed the office with him in mind exactly. Um, and and there's a, an interesting moment when um, uh, when they're debating of uh, the 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 nature of the of the executive when Hamilton speaks up and suggests that the executive should essentially be a, a monarch. Um, and, uh, but it would be an, like an elected monarch. And, and uh, he, um, it, it's, it, it's not said explicitly, but he says that nobody really comments. No, nobody really makes a comment about his suggestion, but it is quickly, it quickly resolves a, 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 um, a dispute that they were at loggerheads with. It, it quickly resolves that. My, my thinking, I think there was something going on in the background. I think, because all of this took place with Washington being the chairman of the convention, and Washington doesn't take part in a lot of the debates. He just sits there. Right. He says very little. My, my thinking is, as soon as Hamilton made his suggestion, I think Washington probably gave him a look, as Washington <laughs> was known to do. Uh, Washington uh, was known for his withering looks. Um, and the the conversation in that direction ended and they went on and, and they were able to resolve things. But um, 
I, I like I said, I think I think Washington was able to keep Hamilton in check uh, to some degree, um, and was able to to educate him uh, a little bit as to what they were really trying to accomplish. Um, as far as um, the, the the second part of your of your question was private about private of power. accumulation of power. Um, I am not as suspicious of the private accumulation of power when it is done truly privately, when it is done uh, truly by the operation of the free market. Now, I'm not an economist, but in, in the last uh, decade plus, I have, uh, as I've as I've studied this topic and and uh, gotten involved uh, in in discussions and debates on this topic, I've had to kind of have a a crash course in uh, in economic theory, um, and so I, I I know a lot more than probably the average person does, but I won't I won't put myself up there as uh, as being a uh, pro professor of economics, um, but. Uh, when, when there has never been, let's, let's, let's talk about monopoly for a second. There has never been, because that's kind of like the ultimate example of uh, accumulation of power, right? Um, there has never been what I would call a natural monopoly. In other words, there has never been a monopoly that has existed uh, without the assistance of government. Every monopoly that has ever existed was created because of government. Uh, we look at the railroads. The railroads were actually given government uh, contracts. They were given government monopolies to, to build the railroads and then to operate the railroads. Um, that's probably the biggest example of monopoly. Um, I will say there is one exception to that, what I just said. The one exception, the one natural monopoly that, is, that has ever existed was uh, Ma Bell. Um, that, that was the... Uh, um, the only natural monopoly. And, and if we look at what happened with Ma Bell, uh, Ma Bell had an absolute complete monopoly on telephone communication in the United States and did for, for decades. Um, what's interesting is that Ma Bell never did what everybody accuses monopolies of doing. They didn't do the, pr the price gouging. They didn't do the uh, you know the the shady backroom stuff. It was it was uh, it was a monopoly mostly because nobody else really understood how to make a telephone network uh, uh, and and run a telephone network. And so Ma Bell's are really interesting. But if you look at Ma Bell, you know people often look at uh, oh Standard Oil. Standard Oil was a monopoly. You know Rockefeller. Well, for one, at his height. Uh, Rockefeller uh, Standard Oil controlled, uh, I think it was 92% of the uh, of the oil market. So not technically a monopoly, but certainly a, a, a serious almost monopoly. But but it reduced. It, it went down to something like 70% uh, or, or high 60s um, without government having to do anything. So you know we, the the big uh, the antitrust uh, suit against Standard Oil that broke Standard Oil up, um, th that was that was following a twenty percent decrease in Standard Oil's uh, uh, share of the market. Um, I don't think I don't think antitrust is necessarily uh, something that we need to worry about. 
um, unless the, the, the individual or company is using government power to, uh, to gain that, the, their, their power. Um, do you think that so yeah, I'm, I'm much less in the 2008, 2009, 2008, 2009, great recession mm. were the bailouts just about keeping those in power in power. Um, yes. Um, but you know, we, we can, we can even look at the, we can even look at the history of, of the, of the crash. And, and the crash was caused, uh, the, the, uh, the immediate cause of the 2008-2009 crash uh, was the, uh, the subprime mortgage market. But that, that's looking at the, uh, that, that's looking at half the picture because why were the banks engaged in the subprime mortgage market at all? Why were banks uh, 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 creating subprime mortgages? They were creating subprime mortgages because government had incentivized it and, uh, and, and mandated it, required it. And so the banks were stuck with these terrible loans that they knew they weren't gonna be able to make any money off of. And so they packaged them up and they, they sold them off in order to be able to make money off of something that government had mandated that they couldn't make money off of. And so really, I mean, it, it, when, you, when you trace it back far enough, the failures of the private market are actually failures of government that, it, that are forced upon the private market. Uh, and then, you know, the, the private market does what it has to do in order to survive and it causes problems. Uh, but if government wasn't getting its fingers involved in the first place, we wouldn't have those issues. So the government created a bubble, then it burst, so they reinflated it with a trillion dollars of, yeah. of uh, bailout money. All right, lastly, Locke's yeah. embrace of both natural rights and natural law was ultimately a rejection of positive laws authoritarianism. It does not matter how gentle the authoritarian acts or whether the positive law is made for our supposed benefit. I, I often tell people that, that when, when you pass a law or adopt a regulation with good intentions, remember what the road to hell is paved with, because any weapon you give somebody to protect you can also be used against you. And, uh, and I've seen that. When you talk about, you know, sort of what the natural condition of human beings is um, and how we wanna use the authoritarian against our neighbor, um, you know, I've, seen, I've been a land use attorney for many, many years and there's a couple things I've oh, you observed. See that every day, then. What's that? <laughs> you see that every day then. Yeah. So, so number one, somebody gets their beautiful house in the woods and they don't want anybody building anywhere around them. <laughs> I've got mine, but I don't want anybody else to have theirs. And then it, even more so. Oh, that's, that, that's, that's a very good, that's, that's a very good phrase. And I want to come back to that phrase. Um, if, if, if you've got regulators, my experience, um, uh, and I'll quote a prophet that I follow and maybe you follow too, it is the nature and disposition of almost all men that as soon as they get a little authority as they suppose will immediately begin to exercise unrighteous dominion. 
And I've seen that in almost every government regulator I've ever worked with. And by the way, the, the source of that quote is Joseph Smith. But, uh, yeah. and, and I don't mean that they're bad people or anything like that. I mean that they don't tend to like the people who come in and work with them who fight city hall. They don't like the people who complain about what, where do you, what gives you the authority to tell me what I can build on my property or, you know, what gives you the authority to tell me that I can't dig a hole on my own property or dig a well or, you know, and the people who come in and, and make noise, well, they, they get, they have to go by the book. <laughs> and oftentimes other people who play along do much better but that isn't right. <laughs> I mean, if we really believe in liberty, the rules should be the same for everyone, not the people who do the best job of kissing up to those in power. But yeah. that's human nature. If we have power, we like to be kissed up to, and we like to have people who cooperate with us and make our job easier and more fun. We don't like the people who are fighting us all the time. Um, and, you know, I've seen people literally arrested um, because they had a dispute with somebody in the planning department in a city and that's how it got going, you know, um, in fact. Oh, you, get... you remember, uh, you remember, um, the story of, uh, you remember the story of Killdozer? Uh, no. Do, do, do you, do you recall that, uh, epic tale? It, it started off as a, as a, as an issue. Well, I think, uh, th th it's a complex story, but basically there's a, there's a guy who was having, uh, some, some, uh, some issues with some of the city uh, city planners and and uh, city council members, and uh, there was a there was a road I think that was built that that interfered with his business in some way. Anyway, long story short, the guy ends up buying a a, a bulldozer and then armor plating it uh, and uh, taking it out and running it through a bunch of buildings in town and destroying like demolishing like 50% of the town uh and took it through uh took it through the hardware store where the owner of the hardware store was like on the city council or something he he, he targeted places that uh that um his his opponents had uh had an interest in and so that's yeah that's that's very common that pe that people get into a lot of issues because of land use disputes yeah, look up, or, or you can listen to my podcast on the Frank Robbins uh, Supreme Court decision. I mean, you read that and it's like, you don't believe things like this happen in America, but they do. Yeah. Um, so, so I wanted to go back to the quote that I read right before that. Um, and for the benefit of our audience, natural law is, is basically God's law. It's the, the, the law of nature, the law given, you know, that we discover by reason positive law is the law that human beings enact for themselves or could be imposed upon them by whoever is the, the best way to the best way to understand positive law is that it's not positive as in positive and negative it's positive as in to posit uh or to state so positive law is the law which is the law simply because it is stated by the authority the authority says this is the way it is and that's the way it is. Um, it's like, uh, I, I, and I, I think, and I that includes Congress in your uh, view. That's right. That's right. Um, it, it's it's akin to the 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 parent saying to the child, uh, "Because I said so," 
um, because I said so is almost a, you know, perfect definition of the word positive law. It is the law because I said so. Um, whereas natural law, there's always reasoning, there's moral reasoning behind uh, natural law. Whereas positive law doesn't rely on any kind of reasoning. It's just, it is the law because I said it is. And does, does this conception of positive law that I just, well, extracted from your book, do you believe the positive, that positive law is always authoritarian? Um, or how, how do you think about it in, in those terms? Because I, 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 I certainly don't imagine that you're opposed to Congress passing laws or state legislatures passing laws. Probably depends on the law, right? Yeah, I mean, uh, um, I'm going to take a moment and collect my thoughts on this. Let me ask you this, because this may help. Do you believe every, every legislative law... act? Uh, l l let me let me go about it this way. Every legislative act um, must be based in natural law, or it, or we run serious risk of it become being tyrannical. Um, that is not to say that positive law cannot exist and that we can't have anything that is simply, you know, uh, for instance, um, when you establish a speed limit for a neighborhood, um, I'm not sure that you can appeal to some natural law principle that says that 35 miles per hour is the, uh, you know, universal truth of speed, the speed limit. Um, there is there is an element of positive law there. Um, I don't think that necessarily that kind of law would become tyrannical, uh, but we have to be on guard against that kind of uh, law. When when there is a positive law, when we do make a decision and say, hey, listen, we're just going to draw a line in the sand and this is where the line is, we have to look at that very cautiously and recognize that there may be uh, natural law implications that may change our view of this law down the road. So uh, the natural law is the only law that we can hang our hat on and say, this is solid and firm and can, or cannot and should not change. Everything else is uh, something that, that should be viewed. And that's why we have juries because juries ultimately are the ones who are able to decide, I believe firmly in jury nullification. Um, I talked about that um, uh, on, on one of my podcasts too, but no, sorry, I talked about it on the lawyer's den, which is the internet TV show I'm a part of. Yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah. I agree uh, because- I'm, I'm very much in favor of that. Yeah, jury nullification is where you put ordinary citizens between the accused and the elites and-, and yeah. uh, it's, you know, I, I think it's wrong to say that an attorney cannot argue for jury nullification. Um, I, I think I, that's, I agree entirely. You know, he can have free speech yeah. anywhere but in the courtroom. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, and, and, and I think that's, that's one way in which we can guard against the, the tyranny of positive law. 
there's going to be positive, positive law is going to exist. There are times that we just need to, you know, we just need to make a law so everybody has the same rules. But when it becomes tyrannical, we have, um, we have the jury to kind of act as a safeguard against that. If juries are informed that they can act as safeguards against it. Well, and, and let's suppose using your, I mean, I know the speed, speed limit is kind of a funny little issue, but, but that I drive past this, you know, a particular area at 50 miles an hour every day. And, and suddenly someone at city hall doesn't like me for whatever reason. And so I start getting tickets constantly, but Christopher Eastwood drives by and he never gets a ticket. I'm being targeted for a particular thing because, you know, and, and that's where I think yeah. that even, even the most, you know, um, salient um, positive law can be used for a tyrannical purpose. Um, and and yeah. I think we always have to ask ourselves when we pass these laws and when we empower people to enforce them, how can this be enforced in a way that's tyrannical? Because any law can be. And yeah. And uh, anyway. Um, yeah. Well, and, and, and you, you, uh, well, you quoted, you quoted uh, Joseph Smith earlier, uh, right. Doctrine and Covenants 121. Um, and I'm not sure how much of your audience is, is LDS, but uh, um, that is, uh, I, I make the case in the Liberty Driven Revolution for this conception of liberty from a purely, uh, from, from a purely historical secular perspective. Um, I think that uh, for those of the, of the LDS persuasion, um, that case is much stronger and much more uh, uh, absolute from our uh, scriptural uh, record and from the uh, record of, the, uh, of, our, of our modern day prophets. And uh, I, I can let you know that I'm not sure when, it, it took me 10 years to get this book out. So I, I can't promise on when the sequel uh, of this book will come out, but the sequel, I've, I, I'm already working on it and it's, it's called Liberty Driven Saints. And it is um, it is entirely based on uh, the scriptural and, and modern day prophets uh, discussing uh, the issue of liberty and, and agency and how those all interact. Um, you also wrote, we should seek to perfect that ideal, meaning liberty, and explain it, expound on it and explain it. And I'll give you the last word on this. Do you believe then in a living constitution? that is a really difficult question to answer um, because the phrase has been used in a lot of different ways to justify a lot of different things. Uh, I will say that, um, that, the, that the proper way to 
Um, I, I believe that the that the amendment process uh, must be used if we're going to change how uh, the, the 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 powers that government has, um, which we don't do. We don't use the amendment process anymore to change the powers government has. Government simply usurps the powers. And, and let, me, let me give you an example of that. And it's an example I use in the book. Um, in uh, uh, you know, the early, uh, early 20th century, um, we, uh, we had the uh, prohibition. You know, we had a, a constitutional amendment that uh, uh, gave Congress the power to regulate the production and sale of alcohol. And uh, a few years later, we decided we didn't want Congress to have that power anymore. So we passed the 21st Amendment, repealed the 18th Amendment, and removed that power from Congress. Fast forward to 1971, and Congress simply passes uh, um, uh, regulations on drugs, make certain drugs illegal. We have the beginning of the war on drugs. There's never been a constitutional amendment which gave Congress the power to regulate the sale and production of drugs. Um, but there was a constitutional amendment. I mean, we, we, so earlier in the 20th, 20th century, we understood that if we want Congress to do something, if we want government to do something that is not explicitly listed in the constitution, we have to pass a constitutional amendment to, to give them that power. But by 1971, we'd forgotten that. We'd forgotten that we need to have a constitutional amendment to authorize uh, Congress to do something like that. So while I do believe that um, the constitution should be interpreted in the context of our, uh, our modern society. Uh, I don't think it should be uh, interpreted um, so broadly as to undermine it, the, the foundational principles upon which it was based. So it, it's, a, it's a yes and no question. Yes, it's a living constitution, but also no. Um, the easy answer is, the, the easy part of the living constitution is the amendment process. That's easy. That's how the constitution should change. Um, and there may be things that society awakens to um, that would, uh, would be an expansion of what had gone on before. Um, for instance, let, let me give you some examples. Um, I think it was uh, a belief in a living constitution which, uh, which empowered the Supreme Court to pass certain laws, uh, uh, make certain decisions um, in the wake of the civil rights movement that, um, that they realized that applying the constitution's principles would require this new interpretation 
of something that had always been there, but we just didn't see it that way before. Um, so I'm okay with that. I'm okay with uh, with SCOTUS having um, uh, the the leeway and the, and the ability to do that. I'm not okay with um, well, I'm not okay with government uh, with SCOTUS uh, realizing or finding a new power for government uh, in in the Constitution. The powers of government are explicit and laid out in the Constitution. The, uh, the powers of the people are not, uh, the, the rights of the people are not, uh, it's broad. And so I'm okay with a living constitution when it finds more rights for the people. I'm not okay with a living constitution when it finds more power for government. And I think that's what we've seen a lot with the way that uh, the commerce clause and the necessary and proper clause have been interpreted. Uh, that I'm not okay with. Um, because the constitution itself explicitly says uh, 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 the uh, 10th Amendment, that, uh, that there are other rights that the people have and that aren't listed here. And just because we've listed some rights doesn't mean that's all the rights. And so our, our constitution does explicitly say that, and I'm okay with SCOTUS discovering or realizing that a certain right exists that we didn't realize it had existed before. Um, but when, when, when they come out and say, well, we are, are going to grant government a power. That's that's not how the Constitution was written. The Constitution was written exactly the opposite. That the that that it is ex, uh, that the powers of government must be explicitly stated, or else government doesn't have that. You know, I'll I'll, I'll tell you how far I go with that, uh, with with my view of the constitutionality of government action. Um, at some point, uh, the Air Force used to be part of, I believe, the Army. Um, but at some point, the Air Force became its own branch of the military. Um, the Constitution does not provide any provision, does not give any provision for the establishment of an Air Force. Um, so therefore, the Air Force is unconstitutional. <laughs> I, think, I think it's an easy solve. I think it's an easy solve. We simply, who, which, which senator, which congressman is going to vote against the establishment of an Air Force? We can solve it and make it constitutional, and I think we should. But if we read the Constitution carefully, there is no provision for an Air Force. The Air Force is unconstitutional. Um, why, why haven't we fixed it? Because, you know, we, we want to establish that, well, Come on, that's not really unconstitutional because it's military. You're right, it is military. But the Constitution doesn't say military. It says Army and Navy. It is explicit. Now, well, they, they, they didn't understand. They didn't, they didn't have airplanes back then. You're right, they didn't. There, these are reasons, these are very good reasons to amend it. But we don't just create it because we want it and then, and then justify it uh, as being piggybacked on something else. We need to keep government explicitly constrained to the, to the terms of the constitution. And if we don't, if we start making exceptions and allowances, then we can't be surprised when those exceptions and allowances are used in ways that we strongly disagree with. So the book is Liberty Driven. Where can people get a copy of it? It's The Liberty Driven Revolution. The Liberty Driven and Revolution. And you can buy it at... Yeah, you can buy it at libertydriven.com. 
there's a shop button and it's sold right there. And uh, I, I have every, every copy of the book that exists that has been sold, has been sold through me. Uh, I do it right here out of my house. Um, it's self-published. Um, and uh, so, yeah, I'll, 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 I'll uh, personally put it into the package myself uh, along with uh, some bookmarks for you. And uh, yeah. All right. So uh, thank you to my guest, Christopher Eastwood. And uh, for uh, the book, uh, Liberty Driven Revolution, The Liberty Driven Revolution, and uh, suggest picking up a copy and looking through it. Fascinating discussion today. I appreciate you being on with me. Thank Friends, you. we'll see you later. And uh, if you are a lover of liberty, you're in the right place. <laughs>